This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Battle of the Animated Feature Films. Disney versus Don Bluth versus Studio Ghibli. <laughs> the versus makes it sound like it's like, fight! <laughs> and in this corner, weighing in at a collective 2,048 pounds, Walt Disney! The Walt Disney Corporation, even. Sorry, not just Walt Disney. Just oh, that was good. <laughs> we should bring in Walt Disney. It's just Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Well, I mean, didn't Walt Disney have his head frozen? So it would just yeah. be Walt Disney. Anyway, sorry, bad tangent. Let's explain <laughs> what we're really doing this episode. Yes. Um. So, I mean, this is this is supposed to be a lighter episode in theory. Yes. Um. We're we're going to be doing it quite organically, so we've got a rough idea of what themes we want to talk about, and um, then we're just gonna. We're going to chat about them. We, 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 yeah, and we're going to try and keep it keep it short and sweet. Um, we're going to be looking at films which are um, ostensibly for children, but deal with actually some pretty hefty themes. Um, and part of the discussion is going to be who did it better, and you know, part of it's just going to be personal preference. Um, but also... But the nuance. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there are going to be things here that Madeline and I are probably not going to completely agree on because yeah. how what a film means to you, particularly when you're looking at an animated feature film with the sort of depth that most of these films have, mm. um, depending on when they were made, obviously, is is when they hit you in your, your progression. So they will yeah. hit us in different points of our childhood and young adulthood. So they will mean different things. That's my theory anyway. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It will it will have a, a, a resounding effect on you. And that will also sort of sometimes change the way that you see them when you get older as well. So we're, we're, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um. But I think kind of the first thing we want to address before we sort of get into the nitty gritty of it is why do animated feature films capture so many of us so easily? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the escapism element. So, you know, mm. even if there's no science fiction or fantasy type content, it feels like fantasy. And I think it perhaps, you know, this will sound very sentimental, but it speaks to that childish part of us that never really grows up. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's something to do with the way that because it's artwork and it's moving artwork, um, it doesn't look like real life, but it captures real emotions. Like something that Studio Ghibli for me is whenever you see like people talk about the Studio Ghibli hug or when the Studio Ghibli characters cry and no one really cries like that. But the way they animate the tears, the way they animate the emotions and stuff like that, it hits it hits home. It feels like they are representing the yeah. feeling, not the visual, but the feeling itself. And so I think that is also why animated films can hit so hard is is when they actually say we're we're not just depicting what's happening externally we are using the artwork to depict what's happening internally as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I will admit I thought you were going to talk about 
um, anime food. And I would have been completely on board because anime food looks better than anything you've ever eaten in your life. Seriously, it looks so tasty. Studio Ghibli, I I swear they do it just to to make you feel hungry. It's like that they're, they're... the the story it'll just be this little flash of bacon and eggs or something or a bowl of rice and it's like the quintessence of food on the screen <laughs> yeah. so um yeah great observational tactics there um yeah but the i think the other thing to consider is yes you, you say animated feature film and people think yes it's for children and in, in some respects that is correct depending on what the film is um and if you're presenting difficult themes to children and as part of healthy development, children do need to tackle darker themes about growing up, being alive, just generally moving through the world. I mean, think fairy tales. Yeah. Um, if you don't deal with your nightmares as a child, then you will definitely have to deal with them as an adult. And that's that's a much worse prospect. Yeah. Um, as you said, it's one step removed. So, yeah, because it, it's the moving artwork sort of scenario, it, again, captures the emotional content but it's not real life. It allows you to sort of look at these darker things from a comfortable perspective. Yeah, a perspective that allows you to look at the grander theme without actually being in a position where it's that easy to imagine it happening to you or it's that easy to kind of picture yourself in it. It's not a traumatising visual. Yeah. Um, it's, you know... <laughs> I mean, we are talking about Don Booth, but you know, <laughs> it's not quite as traumatising as, say, watching the never-ending story and... and you know the horse drowns you know oh, i'm still not over that. <laughs> that that was the i i, I literally <laughs> i made a joke about this because never ending story was on netflix briefly and the caption image they used was that picture of the horse and and what's his name Atreyu, um, isn't it? Atreyu is, yeah, Atreyu, like a, come on, come on, and pulling it and crying. It. And then they put that picture and I was like, Netflix, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, just oh my reminding God, it's, everyone. It's like stabbing you in the childhood, it absolutely is. <laughs> it is, it's like <laughs> childhood trauma, back to, back to bite you. So, um, um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, it didn't matter, obviously, in that scenario, just how alive the horse was again at the end of the story. <laughs> it was just, ah. So, yes. Um, well, animated feature films can be a little traumatising. They are at least sort of removed enough that they look more sort of two-dimensional, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, and I think they're also just fun and wonderful. And I think also animated films... The final reason is that there are things that you can capture in animated films which are still quite difficult to do convincingly in live action. And live action and CGI has gotten better and better and better. Don't get me wrong, they can do some pretty damn amazing things. Yeah. But it takes a large budget and it takes, you know, even to do stuff which doesn't involve large amounts of fantasy. You know, you've got to get a big budget to get certain visuals and things like that. And you can capture that very easily in animated films, like the way they capture the night sky sometimes. Yeah. Trying to capture that on film is is actually quite difficult to really get that sense of the vastness that you feel when you're actually standing underneath the night sky and they can get that in animated films. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously they're not just for children. Many adults enjoy the escapism, the artistry, and the carefully mm-hmm. packaged cool messages as well. 
Yeah. Um, and I find that the most successful animated feature films, and certainly Pixar, but various other companies have now clocked this, mm-hmm. they make their films multi-layered. So yes, there's a, a layer that's very accessible for children and then another layer that's more accessible for older children. And then there's a layer that's clearly there for the adults because the children will have no context, but the adults will be entertained and keep watching them and keep taking their children to see these films yeah absolutely well it's 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 the road to el dorado joke which is like are you looking for these dice he's like how did you get those where was she keeping them (laughs) um (laughs) which that hits no matter how old you are (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely and things like the lego movie as well it's like a lot of the lego movie is not aimed at kids but kids will enjoy the frenetic pace and the bright colors yeah absolutely no they it's it's multi-layered and they're getting better and better at that i think yes so um in our first celebrity death match actually obviously it's not a death match we're not going to say that <laughs> any one studio is better some will have you know, if we're talking things like Disney, Disney has been making animated feature films for the best part of a hundred years now. Yeah. So they're the oldest players in the field and it's not fair to compare something that would have been aired in the 1940s with, in, in exactly the same way with something that came out in the 2000s. You know, yeah. Things have absolutely changed. Um, so this isn't a case of, yes, we're attacking your favourites here. We're just saying, you know, what we've noticed, what works for us. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing we're going to look at is connection with nature and films which explore environmental issues and environmental awareness. So we're going to start off with our heavy hitter, Disney. Um, And I think it's just only fair to talk about Pocahontas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Disney has... It's one of the noticeable things about Disney is there are always animals, there's always nature and things included in Mm. pretty much all the films. And obviously Disney made a large selection of somewhat defunct now um, films about nature, sort of nature documentaries talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, sponges and and, um, lions (laughs) and what have you. And fish, fish. He was very popular about fish, don't know why. Um, (laughs) And, you know, there's... the as much as we laugh at them now particularly the voiceover um they were important at the time i think because there wasn't any any alternative but yes focusing on pocahontas uh which has a core message that is very definitely you will get more out of life if you learn to value where you live and take care of it and allow it to take care of you in return rather than forcing it to yield returns that you can add to your profit margin. I think that's a fair summation of that particular theme. Yeah. And of course, that was tied in with all of that is the race issue, which we're not going to be talking about. Um, But, you know, I I think we do have to nod towards that. Obviously, this is also tied into this idea of ah, the white, the white man is is industry. But the mystical natives... Yes, the noble um, savages. Yeah, they got absolutely nothing about the Powhatan Indians right in that film. Yeah, absolutely nothing. Now, some of of that I can understand why they changed, because the women generally went around wearing little sort of aprons of leather and not much else. And Mm. I understand how Disney might have gone, hmm, maybe that's not appropriate for a family film. Um, but there is a whole lot of other stuff there. They were incredibly sophisticated people who were very politically aware, even though perhaps the uh, 16th century settlers would not have considered it politics as they knew it. It was definitely politics. Yeah. And um, there was, 
there is an interesting message about sharing the fruits of the earth and that which i think is 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 actually genuine uh there's a lot of crap built up over the whole pocahontas legend which is really yeah unfair particularly because she was a very extraordinary person um who didn't really fit in with with either either people because she was she was something of an outlier um but the core message of yes you must respect your environment this is how you do it this is how you get the land to yield for you and this is how you take care of the land in return that is actually true that is actually part mm. of part of her legacy yeah and i think it's it's pocahontas as well kind of touched on this idea of equilibrium with everything yeah um and this is obviously there was a whole lot of other things mixed in there as well but equilibrium um it was a global message so it was equilibrium among people it was equilibrium among people and nature and animals um you know uh, among the dead and the living in some way memory and emotion you know all of these kinds of things they they were all tied in together into one into one world and by disrupting the balance with one you actually disrupt the whole network yeah um which is actually a very good message and it's incredibly good in terms of environmentalism because people tend to think of you know the environment and they tend to think of sort of things on a on a binary level on a level of okay all right so you have this problem we need more of this okay but if you're going to do that and make changes here you have to consider the consequences of that in the wider you know in the wider field um it like it's it's the australian thing where they're like oh we've got what was it they had uh, too many bugs or something like that so they're like we're going to bring in these toads the and then bugs. they had yeah, yeah. T- and then they had way too many toads that nothing would eat and they're like aha but we've got these mongooses that eat the toads but the toads are out during the day and the mongooses are out at night so now there are toads and mongooses <laughs> And then there was the rabbit problem as well. It's yeah. actually why Australia now is what, probably one of the most conservationally minded nations in the world. Yeah. That particularly in, in protecting their indigenous wildlife. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the ecosystem is a vast web and everything you do will have a knock-on effect. And that is a, a really good message, particularly to learn as a child, because everything you do will ha- have an effect on someone. You may yeah. never see that effect, but it's ripples in a pond. Exactly. And it's through that, it also teaches the sense of the value of life. How do we value life um, and on what level? And I think that was important because obviously it was also it was a racial thing as well. Um, and this is not me comparing any one person to animals. It's me comparing the view that other people had, racist had of this is a lesser being. Um, and it was what constitutes as a lesser being? How uh, if if you think of everything as equal, if you think of actually everything's place in the world, nothing is lesser because everything is important. Yeah. Um, so you know it was it was an interesting idea, um, and certainly for the time, I feel like it it did some good. If we put aside a, a couple of you know things that had obviously if we put aside it, it did the, dirty. <laughs> if we put aside the cultural insensitivity. Yes. Um, I, I would say the overall message is good and it is a gorgeous film to watch it has lovely music it yeah. has that great sort of so weirdly it's got that great sense of community about it because yeah. in, okay we know that um, 
the white settlers would have died if the Powhatans had not actually sort of stopped firing arrows at them and decided actually they could be useful to us, which is kind of how it happened. It wasn't, oh, yes, let's embrace our white brothers. It was very definitely, yeah. oh, we think you might be useful against the other tribes. Um, yeah. But leaving that aside, the whole point of them actually coming together and forming a few years of peace is something that did actually happen. And it's uh, it does have that sort of feel to it. And I think it's one of the only Disney films that has a genuinely bittersweet ending. Mm. Because, yeah. it, you know, she belongs where she is and he belongs where he is. And there's the, the whole sort of idea that he will go and educate people, which we do know John Smith did, even though he did it in a very John Smith way. Yeah. Um, I like that ending. I did. That worked for me. There was no way it could work in any other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad that Disney didn't force a, a typical Disneyfied happy ending. <laughs> Yeah, where, where, yeah, she, you know, he, he was like, yes, and now I'm going to be Native American. And he's like, but you're not Native American, are you? No, and uh, the whole sort of adoption to the tribes thing, which again, we know did happen a lot, is mm. a whole other kettle of fish. That's it, yeah. So um, let's move on to Don Bluth and Fern Gully. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> so we're moving down to down continent to the South American continent and the Amazonian rainforest. Yes. Now you're more familiar with this one than I am. So <laughs> I saw this film so many times when I was sort of about 10, 11. And I think it got me at the time when I was most becoming aware of things like the destruction of the rainforest. So in that respect, it was really good in as you know that and it, it, again it has some catchy songs it's got a a sort of amazonian forest fairy um group uh basically this fairy is a main character and a human as a main character and the fairy krista um sort of realizes that the red marks that have been appearing on the trees are something to do with where the trees are being cut down by these huge yellow monsters so basically mm. diggers and things and Zach is a guy who is basically doing a, a, a gap year before he goes off to college, earning some money and cutting down trees in the rainforest as part of a work crew. Um, there's an accident and Krista accidentally, I mean, she's trying to make him see her because he can't, because you know, yeah. he's human and he's very self-involved, which you know humans kind of are. And instead of saying bless him with fairy eyes, she said bless him with fairy size and accidentally shrinks him because all her magic goes horribly wrong. So he ends up being fairy sized and going and staying with the fairies in the wood. This all sounds very twee, but it's actually really quite impactful and hard hitting. Yeah. Meanwhile, the humans who have been cutting down the rainforest have accidentally woken up a dark spirit of destruction which is kind of like yeah i'm all for you continuing what you're doing but we're going to go even faster i absolutely want to wipe out this part of the rainforest and it it becomes a battle for this particular part of the rainforest and yeah as i said it got me at an age where i was becoming really aware of all the species and things we were losing and the animals the plants the fact that we were losing potential cancer cures for example mm -hmm. and i felt really strongly about it 
it is a fun film. It has got some really good stuff in it, and it's not as traumatizing as a lot of Don Bluth stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they don't they don't hold back their punches, do they? No, they do not pull their punches. And you know, if you consider the target audience, when they show a dark spirit or somebody who is genuinely just self interested in that villain way, they are very nasty. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, what, does it convey the same message as Pocahontas? Um, it actually predates Pocahontas, I believe. But it is largely the same message in the sense of we're connected. If you, you destroy this, ultimately you will be destroying yourself and nature isn't there for you. It doesn't exist for you to just take what you want from it and give nothing in return. Yeah. but it's It's also quite interesting as well because by having you know, a human shrink down, it sort of reminds people that it's not humanity and nature. Humanity are a part of nature. Yeah, and that's something we are very apt to forget. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I don't know. I wouldn't say that it does it better. I think it just does it in a different way. Um, it's, it's kind of weird to have almost European-esque type fairies in the rainforest. Mm. But I don't feel that it's trampling on any actual culture in that particular area to do that. I, I, to be honest, I think, I think I saw it when I was very, very young. But I have flashes of it, and sort of like I can hear their voices, as it were. But I don't remember the film. Yeah. So I think it, it never struck me properly um, in the way that it did you because I was too young, really. Yeah, and obviously this is what we were saying at the beginning, that when you encounter these stories can really shape mm. how you see them. Um, yeah. Okay, so for our final one, this is a film I saw when I was about seven or eight, and it is not a film, I think, that's really intended for young children. And yeah. that's the Studio Ghibli off offering Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind, um, which... You know, in fairness, Studio Ghibli touches on themes of environmentalism on in many of its films, but Nausicaa is quite a good one, and you know we'll mm. talk about Princess Mononoke as well. Yeah. Um, but in in Nausicaa's case, this is post-apocalyptic. People are recovering and learning to go back to living with the land after these huge mech wars. And you know, you see at the beginning, the beginning credits are really haunting. You're going through. Um, there's this lovely piece of music and you just see all these mechs sort of like lying around and vines are growing over them and gradually you move away from the ruined cities and out into the wilderness and it takes you through what we find out later on is toxic jungle as in the plants have grown so resistant in the uh, in, in the wake of this this terrible apocalyptic event that the air is poisonous when they're when they're in spore so when they yeah. send spores out, you cannot breathe the air. It will kill you. And it's called Poison Jungle, strangely enough. It's probably more poetic in Japanese. <laughs> um, and it's just really interesting because the people who live in the Valley of the Wind have basically gone back to sort of air farms and growing crops naturally and, you know, working with their animals and things. And they, mm. they are having to work quite hard to eke a living out of the land, but generally they're quite content, I think, probably because they've gone back to the land. Um, and they would keep to themselves, except there are these giant species of insects and things, like the ulm, for example, which are mm -hmm. basically massive, massive grub-type, you know, about the size of 
and those three elephants stood on top of each other we were all covered with eyes and, <laughs> and what have you there they're disturbing and they've got these little tentacles that come out which are sort of sensors and they're sentient that's something you learn later on which is even mm. more disturbing um Nausicaa, the character is very very connected to nature to the point where she believes in it so passionately she'll risk her own life in order to protect it and there are people who still think in the old way whereby you force nature to do what you want it to do you destroy the poison jungle if you can and they're desperately trying to reanimate one of these mechs they think they've found one that still works and they're digging it up and in in so doing they upset the ohm um and there there is this really really gritty sort of struggle between the two as and when when talking again no punches pulled you know how mm. in Disney, when someone gets injured, it's very unusual to see actual blood? Not yeah. so in Nausicaa. <laughs> yeah. It's really quite graphic. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, the other thing to really consider is the origin of, uh, you know, the Studio Ghibli films. And I'm going to talk about uh, Mononoke Hime in a second. Um, because they are quintessentially Japanese. Yes. You are definitely seeing things from perspective of a culture who have experienced very particular kind of a very particular kind of environment. Yeah. Um, you know, in Japan they do have they have actually quite dangerous insects and large insects. They have, you know, poisonous insects. They also suffer from things like volcanoes and um earthquakes and tsunamis um you know this is this is a world where weather is weather and nature are incredibly destructive forces at the same time that they're also you know treasured i mean they the japanese love their uh, their sakura blossoms to the extent where you'll actually get like it when the blossoms start to go that they'll have like a, a sakura watch where, where on the tv they'll say oh where are they blooming and as it crosses the country and stuff like that because it kind of goes in a wave because yeah. as as it goes through sort of different sort of heat areas um so that's really something to consider. This is a country that treasures nature at the same moment that it is battered by nature. Um, it is also a country which suffered two atomic bomb explosions uh, during a time where it was a race to new technology, new, you know, new everything. Um, and what was really interesting for me was when I was in Japan, um, when we were up in the north, we went to a museum which actually looked at um, sort of ancient Japanese. And when I say ancient, I mean Neolithic, the Neolithic people who used to live um, on the islands. Um, and what was really interesting to me is that unlike a lot of other places where we went from being hunter gatherers to farmers, um, and that was a point of pride, which is, oh, we gave up the hunter-gatherer ways. We began to cultivate the land instead. Um, the uh, the Neolithic peoples of Japan continued being hunter-gatherers for a long time. And this was a point of pride in the way that they were displaying this information. This was a point of, no, no, we continue to live with the land. 
Yeah. We didn't cultivate it. We lived with the land. And even now until fairly recently, even the way that menus and food is done in Japan is still incredibly seasonal. Yeah, absolutely. So all of these things are kind of lifting in. And there's this fear of rapid technology and the destruction that it can cause because they've been on the receiving end of that rapid technology and the destructions it can cause. But also an, an acknowledgement that um, there will always be people on both sides, of any sides, who want to go back to that and are not considering and have not considered that the consequences which are right in front of them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's something that Princess Mononoke actually touches on as well, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, I won't go into too much detail i think you know if you haven't seen these films certainly with studio ghibli it's worth going and seeing all of them for yourself because that's the best way to experience them not through me describing them to you um, yeah but again it it doesn't pull any punches this is very definitely yes you need to live but what you need to do in order to live needs to be more respectful of where you're living and more respectful of the creatures you share the world with i think is a, a fair summation yeah. I think the reason that Mononoke Hime, when I first watched it, hit so hard for me was, first of all, I watched it at the right age, where I could really appreciate it. And it has some pretty disturbing visuals as well. This is not something you're going to put in front of, like, you know, your eight-year-old. Wait until they're a little bit older. <laughs> Tell that to my dad, because I'm pretty sure that's when I first saw it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's blood and guts, it'll be fine. She's just not allowed yeah. anything with sex in it. <laughs> yeah, it was... Yeah, no, I, it's it's some of the because the thing is, it wasn't always the blood. It was for me, it was the 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 um the wild boar which was being corrupted. It's the existential horror of it all. Yeah, even even with the spirit of the forest as well, there is something very yeah. terrible about that, even when it's being good. Even yeah, it is. They they managed to capture that spirit, that that fey sort of feel straight yeah. away. It, it it hits it hits hard. It's very. I hated the. Kodama, the little that they would almost break their necks and then their heads would shake and I everyone was like, "That's so cute!" cute. Yeah, everyone's like, "Oh, they're so cute!" And I'm like, "No, because it's just this," and I'm like, "Oh no!" But you know, they're basically like crickets except they're spirits. Yeah, and who break their necks to make noises. Anyway, um, <laughs> okay. Regardless, uh, the thing that struck me about it was that this was not a narrative where it was, oh no, big, bad, evil people are trying to destroy forest, um, because the it, that wasn't it at all. You had this community of people who were who were all working hard. These were not a group of people who were not working hard and the lady who's behind it all um you know who could have been the villainess who could have been the i don't care if i burn down every single bit of the forest um she wasn't just some evil person through and through she was a person who genuinely cared about her community to the point that she hand cared for people and it's never confirmed but they appear to to have leprosy yeah this you know a group of people who would have been totally ostracized from all of the communities um and she's hand caring for them. She's giving them fulfillment work, a place to live, food, um, you know, acceptance in a community which otherwise would have turned them away, would have just left them to die. She cares about her community. And for me, that meant that the environmental things 
were more impactful because it wasn't a just it wasn't me just being able to be like well I wouldn't be like that it was basically saying but society is like that and we've got to be careful of it even the best intentions if we're not careful we can create our our own horrors we can create our own demise definitely okay let's look at theme number two um theme number two which i've picked is uh grief especially losing a parent which um they love to present this to children they do love to present (laughs) this to children um i you know you can kind of see why in some ways but it's also kind of oh by the way you might end up alone it's kind of like this subtext in an awful lot of books and films and i realized there are many many children who actually really need this story as well yeah but it's no less distressing um okay so heavy hitter first off uh we have bambi and we also have the lion king in my personal opinion i think the lion king handles the whole grieving death of a parent thing better in bambi it's kind of a this happened to you it's it doesn't really affect the character or anything Uh, the character of a young deer as well um in the lion king it absolutely throws a shade over simba's life because it's all mixed up with grief and anger and where he belongs in the world yeah and also his his sense of identity and self yeah because he totally rejects his role who he is to the extent that he also you know he's he he allows himself to be raised by a, a meerkat and a and a warthog um, who basically train him not to eat them, yeah. which I think is smart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they kind of teach him not to be a lion in some ways. And it, yeah, you know, there's actually a lot of lot of layers of meaning in what is ultimately a feel good and quite quite funny film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it it it's an incredibly moving piece. I mean, also for me is, um, and I've heard this, and I need to, I need to actually check it. So take this with a, you know, with a grain of salt. But you know, Hans Zimmer did not need to go as hard as he did on that music. But when, you know, initially he wasn't, he was gonna. So I've been told he was actually gonna turn down sort of doing it because he was like, I don't really want to work on an animated film um, until he found out what it was about and that it was about the loss of a parent um, and the development. And I believe that he himself had just lost his father. Yeah. He was, a, he was an adult at this point, um, but he poured so much of that into the music. Now that's what I've been told. I have to verify that properly. Um, so take that with a grain of salt, but I can, I can definitely see that. It because it plausible. is, yeah, it, it does sound plausible, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Okay, on the Don Bluth spectrum, we've got The Land Before Time, which <laughs> so which is like, it. it's a lovely film, but it's kind of like, it is a sob fest from beginning to end. You've just got Smallfoot and his mother, and, and you know, regardless of how um, dinosaurs would have raised their young, or not, as the case may be, because the chances are that Tyrannosaurus Rex would actually have raised its young from eggs, and you know, things like um, Diplodocus would have been kind of like, well, I've laid the egg, you're on your own now. <laughs> um, bye. Bye, regardless of all that. And regardless of the, the weirdly dystopian feel of the entire film, despite it being set literally before written history. Because <laughs> um, this is pre-meteorite strike, guys. That's what's really disturbing about the entire film. It's like the meteor hasn't struck yet and you realise it's coming when the film ends. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, it is. That star's getting bigger. <laughs> it's just re. It is really sad, um, and it is very graphic. You see the sharp tooth, the, the Tyrannosaurus Rex killing um, Smallfoot's mother. Yeah, and you know, or at least in silhouette, it's enough. You know, it's enough for a child imagination. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and then he's on his own, and it it deals with this crushing sense of being alone and vulnerable and unable to look after yourself because you're just not old enough. Yeah. Um, although then that is then incredibly well balanced with the found family of strange, you know, dinosaurs who've all been left on their own. They're all children that he then ends up with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I do remember the impact of that one. Yeah. And how much it, it hurt. Um, because she was such a she was a fierce but gentle character, I think, as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think it also really captured, because of the way they did the sizes and stuff like that as well, she was humongous. They're all absolutely tiny. And for me, that actually captured, again, that emotion of the sense of of the largeness of your parents, not just in terms of size, but in terms of authority in terms of what they can do they're the biggest thing in the universe you know yeah i mean we'll look at any child's drawing if they draw a picture of uh, when my niece draws a picture and i happen to be in it i'm something like six times as tall as her which is absolutely not true she takes after her parents and she is going to tower (laughs) over me one day but she at five and a half is already very tall and is sort of quite not at my shoulder but she's really not very far off considering that she's only five and a half yeah when she draws it she's like down by my knee and it i've seen this on every pretty much every child drawing where they're drawing their families if the little if they've got a little brother or sister then that person is tinier than them but otherwise they're the smallest person in the picture yeah absolutely Okay, the Studio Ghibli um, offering here is When Marnie Was There, which is a really beautiful film that, you know, it's not really necessarily obvious from the get-go what happens. You don't see any traumatic parental death on screen or anything, but it follows Anna, who is a foster child, or I think in the, sorry, in the book she's a foster child, in the the film I think she's sent to live with an uncle and aunt. Yeah. A little while since I've seen it. And she's very withdrawn and she's internalising all her grief because her parents have been killed, you know, in a car accident. Yeah. And she has real difficulty connecting with anyone. So she sort of goes off by herself all day and her aunt's worried about her and her uncle's kind of like, she needs time. She needs time to decide to come back to us. We can't force it. Um, She finds a house, which is quite unusual. And then she meets a girl there with long you know in the book she's got long blonde hair and in in the film i think she has as well but she's about anna's age and they form this unlikely friendship the only thing is that sometimes the house is there and it's lively and and marnie is there and sometimes the house is dead and quiet and shut up and marnie isn't there yeah um i don't want to spoilify anyone because if you haven't seen this you should really go and see it but the entire thing is it's a bit like tom's midnight garden in in the Mm. idea that you're a lonely child and you're lonely because you've suffered a great loss and somehow you manage to reach across impossible odds and make a connection, a friendship with somebody. And it's about coming to terms with grief, with losing your parents. Yeah. And again, I think that it 
It's very interesting to me that very often whenever there's stories about coming to terms with the grief of the loss of a parent or a guardian or something, or something like that it's very much also linked into finding identity yeah because i think there's also this idea that we are so much of our parents even if we don't get on with our parents um you know they have had a massive impact on us in some way or another whether they're there or they're absent you know they can have impact in their absence as well um and when that is taken away suddenly, particularly if they've had a very large impact on you, you're kind of left floundering, going, well, where do I stand now? Who am I? Um, And also sort of, in some ways, just speaking from a very personal perspective, when I lost my mother, there was that sense of who am I? Where do I belong? Do I still have a connection to this part now that, you know, she's gone? Um, And do I try and keep everything the same or do I have to try and rediscover myself? And if I do rediscover myself, am I betraying them if I move away? Am I betraying them if I start to get on with my life? And I think that a lot of films, like when Marnie was there, it, it kind of does touch on that. She she's, she's withdrawn because she doesn't want to connect with things because the moment you do, you feel like you're going to lose something else in turn. And she doesn't. She gains something new. And in gaining something new, she gains something old as well. Yeah, definitely. That idea that you're watering down what you've got left and what you've got left is memories. Yeah. Um, And then learning to reframe the narrative. Okay, so number three. Discovering yourself on a quest. (laughs) Um, We've obviously said before that most quest stories involve the main character actually finding themselves rather than really finding a magical object. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that can certainly be the case here. Um, mm. Interesting selection. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. we'll get others into it. There are quite a few, but uh, let's start with Disney again. Um, so we're just going to put Hercules down there. Yeah. It's not an obvious quest narrative, as in it's not Hercules going, I need to find this thing but he is kind of like i need to become a hero because within the framing of the disney narrative he needs to become a hero in order to then become a god and rejoin his parents on mount olympus yeah Um, we know that's not accurate to the mythology yeah but to be honest disney couldn't be accurate to the mythology because (laughs) not without a lot of a lot of incest and and you know premarital extramarital sex and stuff like that yeah there would have been bad stuff going on (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah um (laughs) but it is it's a fantastic story again in that we once again it's a different it's a different framing but we once again have someone who's kind of in the shadow of his of his parents in some regards and is trying to fulfill a lot of things without actually trying to fulfill who he is on the inside as well as on externally as well um and that is, it's a beautiful story, I think. I actually really, really like Hercules. I really like Hercules. I like the music and I I think, yes, if you look at it one perspective, it's a shallow interpretation of myth, which can be quite nuanced. But on the other hand, it's an accessible, boy, I don't know where I fit in in the universe story. And he's a really sweet character. He's not just a, a macho musclehead. 
He's actually really adorable. He he is. He's actually a very... And the thing that wins in the end is his kindness. Yeah. He throws away his strength. It's not his strength which wins the day. It's not his might which wins the day. It's his love. Um, And for me, that that makes him a true hero. Um, Yeah. He doesn't... he, He forms a connection with someone and he doesn't betray them. Uh, for his own ends. And there's not even really a moment of, of doubt in that either, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He is a he is a genuinely good person in that. And that plays off excellently well against the very jaded Megara as well. Yeah. Um, okay, the Don Bluth. Now, I'll admit it's been a little while since I've seen this film, but I do think it's an interesting one and it touches on the whole identity thing in quite a big way. Um, and that's Anastasia. Mm. Yes. So, I actually really love this film. <laughs> I really, I mean, when I saw it, I really liked it. And I think I saw it again, but I don't think I've seen it for about 15 years. So I might be misquoting. But obviously it's based on the the sort of urban legend of the lost Duchess of the Romanov family. Yeah. Now we can straight away put it up. Historically, it's completely inaccurate from the designs of the costumes to the <laughs> to just just to just everything. It's yeah. it's it's inaccurate. In fact, they they got a few things which were very accurate. For instance, they depict Anastasia's little brother with a limp, which was historically accurate. But then everything else is is very historically oh, inaccurate, the, the, including the, the talking bat. The talking massively, bat, yeah. yeah, not accurate at all. Alas, strangely, <laughs> strangely. Um, no, I think it's it's actually a really really beautiful film. Um, again, it it touches on that that idea of loss, and again the idea of lost identity. Um, but it's about finding the self, and I really like Anastasia as well because again it's not she finds the past, but in the journey of finding the past, she actually ends up finding the future as well. Yeah, and steps away. Yeah, decides she doesn't want to be used by people. It's another one of those ones where, as a small child, you'd probably go, oh, but that's not how stories are supposed to end. You know, the princess is always supposed to marry the prince, etc. And then as you get a bit older, you think, actually, you did me a favour by providing stories like this as well. Yeah. It... It hits... It hits hard, I think, as well, because she starts off the sort of the journey as she's a you know she's not a child anymore she's come out she's been sort of kicked out of the orphanage she's now got a job and stuff like that um and she's looking for her family she's looking for connections with the people in the past she's chasing a child's dream and all of her nightmares and the things that she's haunted with are to do with the past that has been lost to her yeah um and that's not the fate she ends up in, which I think is is good in some ways because a child's dream is actually often an adult's nightmare, if you think about it. Like, yeah, every meal is chocolate, adult's nightmare, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm living awful. a fairy tale. Actually, when you're an adult and you understand fairy tales, that, that is genuinely a nightmare. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a nightmare, exactly. Um, and so she finds something else, but she doesn't have to give up she finds the past accepts it is accepted by it um but she's grown into her own person and she went for an adventure and she found an adventure and she found the ending it was just not the one she initially thought she was heading towards 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the Studio Ghibli offering, um, I'm stretching things a little bit because this predates the creation of Studio Ghibli by a year, but it is the film by Miyazaki, who I'm a big fan of, and that is The Last Unicorn, which is the ultimate film about finding out who you actually are. Yeah. Um, obviously, I've talked about the film a lot, so I won't go into too much detail about it, but basically... It, she, the last unicorn doesn't even question who she is. She's just an immortal being who stays in the lilac forest and keeps everything always spring and summer and never allows it to be autumn and winter. And she protects the animals. And it's when she overhears two huntsmen talking about her and referring to her as the last unicorn, she thinks, well, is that true? Am I the last unicorn? That can't be right. There should be more unicorns in the world. What happened to all the mm. others? And it starts her on this huge quest to find others of her kind. Yeah. And I think through that, her eyes are open. So she might be an immortal being who's lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, but she's never really been open to the process of growing and changing. And by the end of the film, something inside her has fundamentally changed forever. Yeah. It It gets to me as well in that... There's always that line where she says, but I'm a unicorn, I'm a unicorn, after she's get, she gets turned into a, a woman. Yeah. Um, which I, I really like it because it talks about this fundamental shift. And in some ways, you know, she, she's saying trans rights in some ways in that moment. But yeah, it's the idea of being trapped in an identity which is not your own or being forced into an identity which is not your own, when you felt sure of something... Or forced to assume an identity for yeah, a time. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, which, again, can, can, can really go either way if you want to put a modern spin on it. But yeah, yeah, it's the whole idea of I can feel this body dying all around me. Suddenly she's mortal. And with mortality comes all the terrifying things like disease and sickness and pain and death but also comes the things that perhaps you only really appreciate if you're a temporary being, like hope and love and friendship. Yeah. And again, this is one where she... Spoilers, but it's been out for ages. Come on, guys. It's been out since <laughs> you know, the 80s, guys. <laughs> yeah. She, she turns back into a unicorn. It's not that at the end she's like, I freed the other unicorns, but I found contentment in my life as a, as a woman with this other young man whom I've fallen in love with. No, she's a unicorn. She goes back to being a unicorn. And that's bittersweet, depending who you ask. Jules was, you know, no, 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 punching I was tra- the air. <laughs> I was, no, yeah, I mean, I was glad she went back to being a unicorn. But it is very bittersweet. It's sad that now she is the only mortal being that genuinely knows regret. And yet at the same time, that allows her to connect with humans and understand them more than perhaps anything else. Yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> okay um breaking a curse or living with difficult magic <laughs> oh, i love this one okay so frozen um is definitely our disney offering here yeah that's i think that's one of the most nuanced i mean i'm not throwing beanie babies at disney here but genuinely i think that is one of the most nuanced disney films um mm. simply for the the layers of loyalty and duty and being afraid of your own abilities and being afraid that perhaps you're not human incorrectly yeah the thing that always gets me is that actually when you watch the beginning of the film elsa seems to have complete control over her powers yeah she's confident with them and she has this she her confidence gets shaken because of an accident 
Um, and she loses that um, confidence. And it, it always makes me think of, it, it touches on childhood trauma in a really, really good way. Um, and it t- just touches on trauma also in a very good way, which is that you can do something, particularly as a child, you have that confidence of I can live forever, I can do whatever I want, I'll never be hurt. Um, and one accident or one thing can make it very hard to get into the proverbial sa- proverb. I can't speak, proverbial saddle again. Yeah, and in Elsa's case, it's that she hurt the person that she loved most. And the fact that it was an accident did not absolve her of her own personal feeling of guilt and responsibility. And it was then kind of clamped down on by her parents, who obviously were kind of like, yeah, we'd like it if you didn't keep freezing your sister (laughs) kind of thing. So they were well-meaning, but they, they basically gave her a psychological complex about her own power. Yeah. Which, you know, parents do. Parents can traumatise you without actually intending to do any harm. They might genuinely mean mean it for the best. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that the parents also didn't see what happened. As far as they were concerned, she just lost control and did something, you know, something big and scary that they couldn't couldn't explain or control. Um, Whereas actually what happened was that Anna was messing around. Yeah. And... It was just a misstep, as it were. Yeah, Elsa was desperately trying to catch her. She's even shouting, no, Anna, slow down, slow down. Um, As you do as an older sister, when you see a younger sibling who's like blithely kind of like, yes, my older sister will save me. It's fine. I can do anything. And it's utterly terrifying, (laughs) can I just say. Yeah. When When I was a kid, I would give my father a heart attack pretty much every day. He would come back from work because he would come back. He'd open the door and he'd say, I'm home. And I would appear at the top step of the stairs and I'd go, catch me, daddy. <laughs> I'd fling myself off. Yes. And he'd drop his suitcase. He'd drop everything to try and catch me. Like, oh, God. <laughs> He's coming into the house like, all right, I just, <laughs> I hope she's not upstairs because otherwise we're back. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I've cheated on the Don Bluth selection because um, it's, it's had some of the creators who worked on some of the Don Bluth films in it, but it's yeah. not a Don Bluth film. It's American Studios, I think. Yeah. Uh, and that is The Swan Princess, which mm. came out when I was about 16, 17, I think. And is, for the time it came out, which was early 90s, um, it's actually a really dynamic retelling of The Swan Princess. Yeah. Um, it does follow the usual fairy tale tropes and things, but I think it interrogates things like, you know, what the, what Prince Derek, Prince Derek, honestly, Prince Derek's mo- motivations and things are. And it should have been Siegfried, but obviously they thought that name was a bit too far for people to like yeah. <laughs> get on board with. And, you know, Odette isn't just a lovely pure maiden who's doomed to spend her days as a swan um, under the gut, under evil baron von rothbart um she is someone who has opinion she's intelligent she's like uh, it, it's the whole sort of marriage proposal thing where she's like thank you it's lovely you think i'm beautiful but what else am i and of course yeah. derek being a young man of about 18 is kind of like uh <laughs> can't yeah, he, think of anything in that moment yeah he can't vocalize it um, it's like, is there anything else? It's like, is there anything else? <laughs> My ways to insult a woman. 
this like ooh. yeah and he re- and she refuses him which i think i really liked it i really liked that narrative as well as a child because it it said actually you don't have to say yes to a proposal even if you like someone if you feel like actually they're not ready to be in a relationship and that also doesn't have to mean that right that's the end of all things he matures they still like each other they get together at the end i can get behind that yeah, absolutely. And what I one of the things I like most is that, you know, it's a relatively insurmountable odd having this sorcerer against two people who were largely non-magical in any way. And obviously yeah. a cast of animal companions, because where would you be in a film without that? Exactly. Is there a puffin in that? There is no, a puffin in there. There's a very lost puffin. And very a... lost. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a frog as well. A French frog, again, very lost, clearly in a lake somewhere in Germany. <laughs> Don't know why. <laughs> um, and, you know, Adette and Derek find ways of working together to break the curse. And it's the fact that they sort of accept each other on an equal level that eventually breaks the curse. And I think that that really, really works for me. Yeah. And it, it, is, it is a lovely film. It's got some funny bits. It's, again, got some catchy numbers. And the animation's mm. quite pretty as well. It is, yeah. I do like it. And some good jokes. Yes. Um, <laughs> our Studio Ghibli um, uh, offerings are Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, which are about, in some ways, as far away as you can get from the Disney and Don Bluth adjacent versions <laughs> as, as yes. possible. Because they, okay, Howl's Moving Castle is obviously based on Diana Wynne Jones's book, but it's a very weird fairy tale she's kind of told. Mm. And they are very Japanese films in the in the way that there's no real enemy in either of them. Yeah. But there are I- ideas which are the enemy. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Okay, so, okay, right, let's start with Spirited Away. Spirited Away always gets me because it, it's it's actually, weirdly enough, it, there's almost a sense of a story about capitalism and exploitation. Yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> in there, which is good. But again, it for me, it's a, an idea of capitalism, exploitation, and again, the loss of identity through that. Yes. That you can lose your identity in just trying to be, to fit, to become one of the cogs in the machine. Which again, I think, is quintessentially Japanese in in a in a system which actually very much discourages individualism, um, particularly in the school systems and in the work systems and stuff like that, and discourages change. Um, you know, this is based on what my Japanese friends have told me, some of the things that they've struggled with, some of the things they've struggled with during work as well, um, and it's something that sort of a young the younger Japanese generation are pushing against. Um, so yeah, for me, I really, really like Spirited Away because yeah, you've got this this young girl who, first of all, doesn't really sort of appreciate what's happening, and then almost becomes lost. And the way she becomes lost as well, for me, is is really beautiful. She becomes lost in a world which just is functioning around her, and she just starts to go with it, um, and. If she just kept going, she would have just been stuck there. Yeah. But because of the small acts of kindness that she's given um, and the the small acts of consideration, uh, which she has because she's still just human enough, she's able to navigate her way out. Yeah, it's a 
it's almost the classic one of the ways to conquer enemies is to turn them into friends thing and by yeah. the end even the witch who has taken her name and is basically employing her as bathhouse attendant yeah. is kind of treating her like she's a beloved daughter almost it's, yeah it's really interesting and in giving back the name to that you know her, her dragon friend who you know doesn't seem all that friendly initially yeah. um you know she discovers that her own name has actually gone missing and she's not called sin she's called something else and that she has she had the people she feels she needs to rescue are actually her parents so yeah it's this beautiful multi-layered and quite eerie fairy story that yeah. has a lot to talk about in there but um yeah definitely living with a difficult difficult magic difficult curse yeah um and then you know Howl's moving castle again unsurprisingly because this is not the case in the book you know the the, the film has got a very anti-war kind of concept yeah um and it has again this idea of, of l larger powers being you know warmongering and one of the bits that always gets me in the film is that the king arrives at one point and Howl has impersonated the king and the king takes one look at his impersonation and laughs yes. and just says, oh, you, you're always doing these funny tricks. Okay. And he leaves. And I'm like, dude, the implications of this are terrifying. <laughs> Do you yes. not realize that? <laughs> so he could, oh God, he could walk in anywhere, pretend to be you and order the army to like advance. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's bad. Put it that way, particularly yeah. if it's as feudal as it appears. Yeah. Um, you could be killed at any point. And it's the fact that she didn't tell him, you know. Yeah. But you could be killed at any point and replaced. I know. really like... I mean, Sophie is living... She starts off as a, a young woman. I think in the book she's 16 or 17. Um, yeah. And she's about the same age in the film. And she's quite shy and, you know, she's lost her father. And again, she's retreated into herself. And she just... She doesn't talk to anyone in the book. She talks to Hats. And you get a little bit of that in the film. Um, yeah. And then you know the witch of the waste comes down curses her and makes her 80 years older than she actually is and it's kind of like suddenly becoming an old woman but it's a you know she turns the curse to good effect because it becomes a weirdly liberating experience for her she stops wanting to hide so much she starts being crotchety and having an opinion about things and it's just being able to be out there in that way which allows her to actually fall in love with someone and and, and form a relationship yeah um I think in the book there's an implication, and you sort of get it in the movie, that actually the witch didn't curse her at all. She's cursed herself. Well, she, the witch curses her initially, but Sophie yeah. has been holding on to the curse so hard because it was liberating to be removed from the male gaze, I think is kind of the fairy tale element Diana Wynne-Jones was yeah. going for. And yes, you do get a bit of that in, in the film as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, Because in the book, she actually looks at her reflection. She's like, yep, that's pretty much what I was expecting to see. Whereas in the film, you get this actually this really nice moment where she looks in the mirror and she goes, ah, and she walks away and then she walks back into the mirror, back to the mirror again. And it's beautifully animated. It really but, yeah. is. But it's it's the fact that she has she's lived her life essentially being what she feels is past it. Like she's an old woman. She might as well be an old woman at this point. She has no she's got no beauty. She feels sort of vulnerable, pushed out, forgotten in society. Just someone who's, you know, fit for housework. She feels that way, you know, about the way her family see her, but regardless of whether that's true or not. And so, you know, she has, she's internalized this and now it's the external part of her. And then she's like, great, I can just live like this now. 
Um, but there, there are these beautiful moments where she turns young again. Yes. And it's because she's not thinking about that. She's not self-deprecating or anything like that at all. She's Her heart has opened. Yeah, and, she, you know, it's one of my favourite bits in any animated feature film ever is the bit where they go to Star Lake, which isn't yeah. really in the book in the same way. And yeah. it is so incredibly beautiful. And Sophie, the old woman, you just see her in sort of about four strides. She stops moving like an old woman and starts moving like a young girl again. Yeah. So it's like she forgets herself. She forgets to hold on to the curse quite as hard as she has been. And she'll start talking a little bit like, you know, they'll have the younger voice actress talking. And they blend the two voices. It's so incredibly well done. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful idea. Um. So, yeah, it's a weird film, though. <laughs> it is a very weird film. Um, I know Diana Wynne-Jones actually really liked it. She really liked their their version of, of her story. Yeah. It's a book which... It, sorry, it's a film which catch, captures a certain spirit, I think. Yeah, I think it captures the essence of the book. Um, and, you know, the book and the film are equally worthy. If you haven't seen or read either, you should absolutely go and check them out. Yeah. Um, okay, so courage in the face of terrible odds or the small and weak triumph. Okay, <laughs> so let's go with Disney. Um, and let's begin with Rescuers, which is just they—they've got the the small down there. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And in another film we'll talk about in a minute, um, it's really interesting that when someone wants to tackle this sort of subject and they're going to use animals, they nearly always use mice. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the ultimate it, underdog, <laughs> the ultimate underdog. And it's the same in books as well. I can think of so many books where you've got mice as the main characters and they mm. triumph despite terrible odds. Um, the Rescuers is, you know, it's maybe a little bit dated, the first film now, um, but it is really, really lovely. And then The Rescuers Down Under has one of my favourite um, kind of ship moments. Mm. In fact, my first and ultimate ship is, is, Bank, is Bianca and Bernard. <laughs> it really is it's like people ask me and i'm kind of like i must think of something else because this will sound really incredibly sad but i'm like <laughs> he's desperately trying in the second film in the rescuers down under he's desperately trying to propose to bianca bianca's utterly oblivious because she's just kind of like she's with the person that you know she she genuinely cares about and yeah their next big case comes in and he's kind of like oh well i guess i don't get to propose and he keeps trying all the way through the film and something yeah. always happens like they get attacked by a snake <laughs> and then in the end despite everything bernard is kind of like well bianca's been taken away so screw this i'm just basically going to be the nastiest thing out there in the bush and he does it it's brilliant <laughs> oh, it's so adorable so um yes <laughs> big, big, big big tick for me there big tick big big tick <laughs> um okay so the don bluff uh one uh is the secret of nim yes um weirdly haunting film uh from a, a weirdly and quite disturbing children's book which is nevertheless brilliant called mrs frisbee and the rats of nim um it's very unusual in a children's film to have a mother cast as the main character and not only to be cast as the main character, but to face the sort of things you'd have a young adventurer type character having to face. 
mm. and finding a way around them. And yet that's what you've got with Mrs. Frisbee. And we're never allowed to forget that she is a mother and a wife first. And, you know, we've talked about this before, so we're not going to summarise the plot. But again, she's another mouse. Yeah. She goes to the rats for help because her husband had connections with the rats. And at the end of the book, she, you know, every she's thrown absolutely everything she can at not getting the field near her, her son, her, basically her winter home ploughed because her son has pneumonia and is too sick to be moved. She throws absolutely everything at it. And at the end of the book, her devotion and her courage actually are the things which mean, make it possible to save Timothy. It, mm. it's, it's really amazingly well done. I, I do love stories like that. Where it is the small things, the small triumphs, the small heroes. Yeah. Um, who, again, by force don't have a lot to offer, but by sheer determination, you know, yeah. are able to, to form, to find ways. Yeah, it, it you know, it, her love for her, her family, her courage, which comes out of that. I mean, think about it, a small mouse uh, and her first bit of advice is go and visit the owl. And it's yeah. like, yeah, but you realise I'm a mouse, right? <laughs> that sounds like a Guys. terrible idea. Um, and yet she has the courage to do it and, again, to mention the rats and her and her her husband who has deceased before the beginning of the film. It, it yeah. is just a, new, a really incredibly good story. And it's another one where I'd say watch the film and read the book. You'll get something different out of each and they're, they're equally worthy. Hmm. Okay. That's very cool. Uh, right, our Studio Ghibli one. Yeah. Um, sort of looping back to Nausicaa, which, you know, I don't need to summarise because I did earlier. But Nausicaa, compared to the sheer might of the forces of nature, is very small and very vulnerable and very nearly dies Yeah, uh, through what she does in the film. It's only because the Ohm kind of look, you know, see see her courage and the fact that she is she wants to protect everyone. That yeah. they they heal her in the end, and other people see through this act that the Ohm are actually kind and sentient, and don't mean them any harm. If we could just maybe stop killing them, <laughs> yeah. If we could just maybe get along, <laughs> yes. But yeah, it it is very much a tiny, tiny person against these huge. You'd you'd almost say monsters that. You, they're basically kaiju at this point in time yeah and it, but it's also against huge odds as well and a yes. larger issue which is which no one person can solve but there she is trying to do her part yes yeah that hits hard definitely okay our final theme of the day and you know there are dozens more and if you enjoy this episode ask us and we can definitely do another one yes um but our final theme for today for being tackled in various different ways is coming of age. Yes. Now, obviously, <laughs> this is a big one, particularly whenever you get films which are based off of books, children's books in general. Coming of age is a very large theme. So Disney, it just has coming of age stories abound. OK, Hercules, you could argue, is a little bit of a coming of age story. Um, but Snow White, Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. Tangled tangled <laughs> anything where you've got a heroine who has 
is basically not so much rejecting childhood but moving away from it i mean in the little mermaid she's very very definitely rejecting childhood she feels trapped yeah um in snow I mean, white it's kind of you know again we're not going to judge snow white by the time it was written in or produced no. in but she the whole sort of one day my prince will come you know i i am i'm holding faith that there is something out there for me i've reached an age where i feel like an adult i need to reach for more yeah but also it was i i do snow white again you have to you have to appreciate it for the time that it was it was written in but she was in a situation where she it was just her doing things and she was waiting for someone to come and rescue her um and ultimately she made a life for herself somewhere else and again this is not you know her active you know she she doesn't appear to be very active but she is again in her kindness you know yeah i mean this is something i'd really like to discuss in another podcast episode but just briefly it's the idea that so many people have said oh you know these early disney heroines they're not feminist they're actually giving out quite a toxic message and the more i think about it the more i think actually what they're doing is giving you a quieter message which yeah. is just as valid which is things like holding to things like kindness and respect and yeah. your own internal core morality and seeing everybody as being a valid person those yeah okay that's not drawing a sword and slaying a dragon it's not active but it's not yeah. passive either this is no. a kind of you can't change you're in an abusive situation particularly with snow white and cinderella and you can't mm. change anything about it but but your own actions and your own actions are to be kind not to become cruel like the person who is being cruel to you yeah I, cinderella always gets me because everyone's like oh she, you know she just she she dreamt for a mat like no she didn't she wanted a night off yeah she wanted <laughs> she wanted a night to go and have some fun and during that time she happened to fall in love she doesn't know that that's the prince he doesn't know who she is she and you know it's not like she you know she had a good time she had no idea that he was going to come look for her and she didn't uh, think that that was an option either otherwise she probably would have said this is my name this is where i live she didn't she just knew that she had a certain amount of time where she could go and you know be happy in disguise before she had to go back to her life which was the life that she felt trapped in yeah absolutely you know? um and beauty and the beast i think is actually a really good coming of age story you've got Belle, who is very definitely an adult or a very young adult at the beginning of the film i mean mm. all these disney heroines marry in what we would consider horrifically young age um but you know in terms of the story and everything it, it's perfectly normal and she's literally saying i you know i want adventure i want more than what's being offered here i don't fit in here there is more out there and ultimately she's handed the ultimate adventure through the yeah, courage yeah. of her own actions yeah i also think that you get it not in um elsa's story in frozen but anna's story yes this is a child who who you know comes of age she goes from this ideal that she has which is based on the trauma of her childhood to actually becoming more of an adult and then she takes that next step in the second film which again for me is a big sort of jump from her because she goes from clinging to the idea of her parents and this need for connection to clinging too much to her sister because she almost lost her and she's finally got her back to you know actually finding her own place her own setting and in doing so having to also accept the trauma and the sadness and that things change 
which is also why the whole seasons idea was actually quite good as well because it's it's this idea that yeah things do change and that's not necessarily a happy thing but it's a reality and it doesn't have to be a sad thing either yeah agreed um the don bluth one that we've gone for is an american tale goes west now for those of you who have not seen american tale it's mice again strangely enough um but this is basically is based on the experience of a lot of russian and polish immigrants to america or certainly polish immigrants to america um in sort of like the 1920s 1930s type era and how everything down to your very name might get changed and how families sometimes got split up um american tale goes west sort of looks at that sort of frontier spirit so you know you've you've moved countries because you were so hungry and poor in your first country and you've come here and found that there aren't a lot of opportunities in the city for you because you talk differently and you're part of a different culture so you go out to the frontier and start cultivating land there and an awful lot of people were, were very successful doing that um that's why i think an american tale goes west is kind of more of a coming of age story because the two children, um, Fival, who is the young boy mouse, and Tilly, I can't remember her, her Polish name, but she's called sort of Tilly when she gets to America, are separated in An American Tale. And then if the whole story is about Fival getting back to his family. In An American yeah. Tale Goes West, Tilly's trying to break away from her family a bit um, to the point where, you know, she's, she's singing in the saloon and she has the chance to become a bit of a star. But there's 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 a price to pay for that and there is a price to pay for what the rest of her family is doing as well and Mm. it's learning to look at the world with adult eyes i think that entire film is about realizing that you can't just accept the childish explanation for things anymore you have to start thinking for yourself yeah and that not all adults can be trusted absolutely yeah okay um, our final one is Studio Ghibli, and that is Kiki's Delivery Service. I love that film. <laughs> it's a, I, I've seen some people complaining about it um, because they're like, okay, but where's the plot? Um, and again, it's it's a very internal story, and it's it's a massive slice of life story. I think. Yeah. Um, which sort of looks at the trappings of growing up, the the difficulties, the 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 highs and the lows. Um, and again, identity comes into that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Kiki is kind of, she's feeling her way in the world and she's not directionless, but she doesn't know where she fits in. And it's being out, it's kind of like you've left home, you're out on your own, you're an adult, you have to make your own choices and your own mistakes. Oh God, what do I do now? It's that feeling of being slightly adrift and Mm. swimming against the tide, I think. Yeah. And the thing that always gets me is that she sets off. She's rearing and ready to go when she sets off. She feels like she knows exactly what she's doing. She's so ready for this. And then she arrives, she begins, and then she has the uncertainty. Yeah. And with the uncertainty, you know, comes this sense of self-doubt. And with that self-doubt, the loss of her powers. Um, Because she doesn't believe in herself. She doesn't believe really in what she's doing. And for me, the thing that's really bittersweet is that she loses the ability to talk to her cat. She can no longer hear her cat's voice, even when she can then fly again and things like that. And that's something she's lost. That's something of the small abilities that you have in youth that you don't get to keep as you get older. 
And that's bittersweet, but ultimately it's a happy story. She's found a connection. She's found a place. So she's gained something and she's lost something. Um, and that's a healthy depiction of growing up, I feel. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's a sweet, slightly humorous, um, quite uplifting film, I think, in the end. But again, mm. it, it does still have those Studio Ghibli trademarks of yeah, nothing is as straightforward as you want it to be and you're not going to go from A to B in this story. Yeah, and that people aren't straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so what are your, uh, let's say, what what are your top three favourite moments in animated feature films? Oh, that's really, really hard. <laughs> um, that That's, that's, that's are we sticking to the ones that we've discussed or can we I think if we stick to these three studios okay well you start you started off and I'll I'll okay. um, uh... <laughs> um my one of my okay one of my favorite uh moments is when the last unicorn realizes that she can stand up to the red bull and she starts driving it into the sea and all the unicorns pour out of the sea and mm. sweep across the land like a, a silver tide that's amazing um i think all my moments are going to be really really visual because that seems to be what captures me um, i've already mentioned Hal's moving castle and the moment where they're at star lake and there isn't really anything happening there but it's just so incredibly beautiful and it's, yeah. it's a quiet moment in a film that actually has an awful lot going on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're both kind of Studio Ghibli ones. Um, and I don't know. I think there are lots of moments in in Disney, but I really like the opening sequence of Beauty and the Beast where you're gradually following the the camera as it winds through you know the forest and you see the waterfall and everything and you've obviously got yeah. the voiceover because that really does feel like you're being irresistibly pulled into a fairy tale yeah absolutely um i mean this would be really hard because there are so many you know bits that i love and visually there are there are just so many stunning moments um in a lot of movies i, I mean i love some of the visuals in in frozen 2 if nothing else and i love some of those songs yeah uh, not gonna lie i mean I, yeah I, I can't lie about that i think in terms of sort of quiet moments which really struck me um I, I had one and it's literally just gone out of my head. One one moment which really struck me, uh, this is going to sound so really stupid, <laughs> spirited away when Haku comes and tells um, a Chihiro what her name is or what the situation is. And they are hunt they are both squatting like among like sunflowers or something like that. Yeah. And he's brought her food and she's crying and eating at the same time. Oh, that's so sweet. She's <laughs> also kind of like, I need to eat, but I also need to cry, but I also need to eat. But I also need to eat. Like, that hit hard because she's crying, she's squatting, she's hiding, and he's there beside her. And he can't really help her, but he's there. And she's like, I'm eating, eating, but I'm also crying and I'm eating and I'm crying. And I'm like, yeah, I, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been in that situation and again the Studio Ghibli tears as yeah. well um, 
I think most Studio Ghibli hugs as well and the food, but the hugs in particular, when you see them running and they hug each other and, and the way they just wrap themselves around each other. I mean, that that always sort of really, that really strikes me every single time that I see it. Uh, um, actually, one in particular always struck me is that there's a moment in Princess Mononoke where, and I've, I've just um, forgotten what his name is, um, where oh. they are, yeah, no, it's gone out of my head now. As well. yeah, they're they're arguing, or she's shouting at him, um, and he just slowly comes forward and he embraces her, and she's she's sort of she's hitting him, and and he's just holding on to her. And usually, usually when you see that trope, it's a very much you know, uh, he's pissed her off. A, a guy's pissed a, a woman off and he's holding her and basically just holding her in place um you know and i i don't usually like that at all i just think okay but maybe you should listen to what she's saying but for me it wasn't like that at all it's this situation where she's not flinging hatred at him she's flinging hatred at herself yeah and she has you know she's been raised by wolves who've basically her her, her wolf mother says that she's ugly She's ugly. She'll never be accepted because she's not a wolf. And he thinks that she's absolutely beautiful. And it's not just in terms of looks or anything like that. She's internalized a lot of hatred um, and is expressing a lot of that hatred towards humans. But she is a human, ultimately. Yeah. And when he holds her like that, that hits, that image always hit me hard because it was like he was watching her beat herself he was watching her hurt herself and he stopped it and he held her and he just wanted her to know that she didn't have to that she was totally loved at that point um so i think that's one of the visuals that always really really um hits hard for me and that, as you say, there are so many good. I mean, you could just pick one Studio Ghibli film, and there would be so many moments. There's that you so could many just moments, go. and all of the food. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the way that in Studio Ghibli they they do, and they do it on purpose. They kind of have this beauty in housework, and in preparation, and in cooking, and stuff like that. And there's this beautiful simplicity in all of it, sort of being put together. So you see, in Spirited Away, when you see them all washing and they're all sort of in a line, um, or you know, in various ones where you see them cooking. Um, in Howl's Moving Castle, when they're cooking, they've got the bacon and eggs and stuff like that, <laughs> and it it feels homely. It feels warm and comforting and delicious, even if the meal is a really simple affair. It looks delicious and they capture that feeling so well. So I think those are probably the the top three that come to mind. But there are so many, you know, there are just so many. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay. so on that note, we'll wrap this up, guys. Um, Yeah. Again, there are so many more themes we could look at. There are so many more films we could look at. So if you enjoyed this, let us know and we will do maybe another episode on this in future. Absolutely. Um, before we go, we have a Dissecting Dragons recommendation. I think Madeline's got one for us this week. Yes, I am. And we are continuing with the theme of visuals. Um, I'm actually going to be recommending a graphic novel series uh, called Heartstopper. Oh, right. Yes, I have read that. <laughs> yeah. So Heartstopper by Alice um, Osman, I think it is. Yeah. Um, I've read, I've only read the first two volumes. Um, it is a queer 
YA romance about these two boys in school who fall in love with each other. And it's just really sweet. It's wholesome. It's sweet. It's actually, the drawings are very cute. The style is really, really lovely. Um, and it's actually really nice to, for, for me, I, I really enjoyed reading a story which is just about two people who fall in love and the difficulties of falling in love, particularly if, you know, you're figuring out your sexuality at the time or that you're, you know, you've been outed at school and that's hard. But it's not all hard hitting, you know, oh, I hate myself or anything like that. It is, it's mostly just about, okay, it's actually kind of difficult, but also really exhilarating and lovely falling in love, um, you know, in school and stuff like that. And it's just, it's really cute. It's very much worth reading. So that's Heartstopper um, by Alice Osman. Um, do check it out. Cool. Um, I have checked it out and I endorse Madeline's opinion on this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's got a really nice cast of people as well, so yeah, um, it's 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 worth it's worth doing. And on that note, guys, we're gonna say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.